I think we should make a, a start fairly promptly because we're going to have a, a very interesting evening and I'm sure that uh, there'll be a lot to listen to and a lot to discuss this evening. Uh, we have with us a distinguished uh, aviation journalist and writer who uh, is, uh, has recently been a research fellow at the Science Museum where he's uh, researched the topic of this evening's lecture quite extensively. And in fact, uh, he has produced a book which is going to be emerging from the publishers very soon, early this summer, and perhaps more of that later. But uh, um, I think uh, we can be assured that he's done a very great deal of work on this subject and uh, uh, I'm sure we shall um, uh, find ourselves illuminated in many ways by what is going to be said. Um, he is the former European editor of Aerospace America, uh, former technology editor and deputy industrial editor of The Times, and a former assistant editor of Flight International. And he's already the author of Concord, New, New Shape in the Sky, which was published by Jane's in 1982. Uh, after service with the Fleet Air Arm, he studied at Manchester University and I think took maths and physics there and uh, then studied aeronautics at the <coughs> College of Aeronautics at Cranfield and joined flight in 1952. And he moved to the Times in 1967 and left to go freelance in 81. He set up uh, a firm called Innovation Research, a research and writing consultancy providing services to clients in government, professional institutions and industry. And in particular, he was a consultant to DTI on the Alvi programme. He's been a member of this society for over 50 years and he's a senior member of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Um, I'm sure that we shall have a most interesting time this evening and therefore I'd like to immediately uh, hand over to Ken to talk to us, Concord and the Americans. Ken. Good evening. Confirming what the chairman just said, that's what I'm talking about, that's who I am, and that's the hat I'm wearing tonight. I just hope we've all come to the right meeting. And because one picture is worth 10,000 words, this slide shows Concord, the most beautiful airplane in the world. This shows one of ours, and one of theirs. <laughs> I made that 20,000 words already. Before I embark on the next 20,000, I may be some time, these organizations help me by support of various kind. Moral support from the Science Museum, including free use of the photocopier, and financial support from the Royal Society 
Nuffield and the Smithsonian. Many people helped me in my research, including these veterans of the American Concord campaign. They all deserve a campaign medal, I think. I'm delighted to see that some of them are here tonight, and I hope they'll give us the benefit of their recollections during the discussion. Right, when we think of Concord and the Americans, most of us think immediately of the battle to gain U.S. approval for transatlantic Concord airline services. With reason. The battle was tough. The conflict reflected mutual antagonism and mistrust. At times, things got rather unpleasant. As they confronted each other across the water, neither side was prepared to give an inch. And that was just the British and the French. <laughs> That's a slight exaggeration, to be honest, but I'll explain the basis for it later. As for the Americans, alas, I have no conspiracy theory to suggest. The U.S. approval process was certainly the most important phase in relations between the Concord Nations and the United States. And it's this subject that I'm concentrating on tonight. But there were also three other relevant transatlantic SST topics. These were the early attempts by Britain to mount a joint Anglo-American supersonic transport program, the impact of the Concord on planning for the American SST, announced by President Kennedy in 1963 and cancelled by Congress in 71. And finally, another sort of approval, the process of obtaining an American Certificate of Airworthiness for the Concord. I'll start with a brief word on the first two of these topics. Cabinet papers and other official documents of the Macmillan government in the late 50s and early 60s show quite clearly that Britain's first choice of an SST partner was the United States. It was true that the Supersonic Transport Aircraft Committee had recommended in 59 that Britain could go it alone on an SST. Indeed, amazingly as it now seems, could go it alone on two SSTs, a transatlantic Mark II machine and a Mark 1.2 shorter range design. But as plans advanced, cost and market estimates pointed to the benefits of international collaboration, politically if not industrially. In April 1960, Duncan Sands, Minister of Aviation, warned the French that Britain was keen to get started and, if the French did not respond, we would turn to the Americans. In November 61, Peter Thornicroft, then Minister of Aviation, warned the Americans that, if they did not respond, we would turn to the French, which we did, as you know. The concept of an Anglo-American SST was flawed from the start mainly, but not entirely, because of the American preference for a cruising speed approaching Mark III 
not Mark II, and the American assumption that the United States had no need of any partner. But a great deal of effort was expended in this country, in the ministry and in industry, in chasing this particular wild goose. As for the impact of Concord on the American SST program, papers in national and presidential archives in the United States show that this impact was substantial. The Central Intelligence Agency was brought in to keep tabs on Concord progress, and this progress preoccupied President Johnson's Advisory Committee on Supersonic Transport, chaired by Robert McNamara. Eugene Black and Stanley Osborne, senior presidential advisors, went so far as to declare that the Concord was setting the pace, posing the problems, and defining the competitive and technical necessities of the American program. And what are we to make of the pressures that undoubtedly were applied by McNamara and others to persuade British ministers to abandon the Concorde. Julian Amory and others were convinced that the aim was simple, to give the American SST a clear run to mop up the market unchallenged. I doubt this. My research points to a different conclusion. I believe the aim was to make it easier to stretch out or cancel the American program. McNamara and other advisors were supersonic skeptics. With uh, the Anglo-French machine out of the way, there would be no need, uh, there would be no competitive pressure to force the U.S. to go ahead with what uh, was undoubtedly an expensive venture of doubtful merits. The other impact here was a revival of the suggestion of transatlantic collaboration. This time, a two-fold program in which British and French participation in the expected Mark III machine would follow uh, the United States joining Britain and France on Concord. Again, practical politics ruled that one out. Now let's turn to the approval process. This was the sequence of events. First, the Federal Aviation Administration had to assess the impact the proposed Concorde services would have on the environment. Next, the Secretary of Transportation, William Coleman, held a hearing at which some wider issues also were raised. He decided that services should be permitted for a trial period of 16 months. Concord services began to the federally owned Dulles Airport in Washington, but the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey then banned the airplane from Kennedy. That ban led to lobbying for and against the ban on an unprecedented scale and after some delay to a process of litigation through the New York courts which eventually resulted in the ban being lifted. Incidentally, the overall picture was not as neat and tidy as that sequence might suggest. 
it was a rather messy, confused and mixed up affair. In the environmental impact process, the FAA first produced a draft environmental impact statement, or EIS. Then public hearings on the draft statement were held. Next, the final environmental impact statement was published and then at the level of the FAA's parent department the Secretary of Transportation held his own one-day hearing and made his decision. The process began with brief letters from British Airways and Air France to the FAA in February 75. These sought approval to begin regular services the following year each airline to fly two flights a day to Kennedy and one a day to Dulles. Normally such approval would be given automatically, but the Concorde was abnormal, and so the Environmental Policy Act of 1969 was invoked. This applies to any major federal action significantly affecting the quality of the human environment. Sonic booms were not an issue. All civil supersonic flight over the United States had already been banned. The draft statement admitted that the Concorde noise levels exceeded those specified in Federal Aviation Regulation Part 36, or FAR 36, and the low frequency noise was greater than that of other machines. But the agency recommended that the airline's application be approved. The volume of Concorde operations and so the environmental impact would be limited and would not prejudice any later general SST rules. At the public hearings on the draft statement held in Washington and New York, the Anglo-French Concorde team was led by Ken Binning, Director General Concorde in the Department of Industry. His team represented not only the two governments, but also the two national airworthiness authorities, the four aircraft and engine firms, and the two airlines. They argued that the environmental impact of the proposed operations was minimal. Others at the hearing begged to differ. One waxed historical, if not hysterical, going back to 1775 when the lantern signal for the approach of the British was one if by land, two if by sea. Now, 200 years later, another signal was needed, three if by air, and this time with the French. Responses to a massive volume of further written comments were included in the agency's final EIS, published in November 75. This document was the main environmental input to the deliberations of William T. Coleman, Jr., Federal Decision Maker Extraordinary. Coleman was a distinguished black lawyer who had been appointed Secretary of Transportation in the Ford administration the previous March. The Concord issue raised unique questions of public policy, he said. In summary, he saw his task as to obtain a proper balance between 
technological advance, international relations, and environmental quality. Coleman's all-day public hearing on the 5th of January 1976 was a marathon affair. Some 70 speakers had their say, of whom about 40 opposed Concord and about 30 were in favor. This time the Concord team was led by a politician, Gerald Kaufman, Minister of State in the Department of Industry in the Wilson government. They reaffirmed that the small number of proposed flights would have very little impact on the environment of the United States. Not so, retorted Bert Rhine of the Aviation Consumer Action Project. Beware the European Aerospace Challenge, he warned his fellow Americans. This was a question not of biting the hand that feeds us, but of feeding the mouth that seeks to bite us. Three British anti-Concord activists had flown over for the occasion. You can guess who they were, but I'll tell you anyway. The Right Reverend Hugh Montefiore, Bishop of Kingston-upon-Thames, Andrew Wilson of The Observer, and Richard Wiggs of the Anti-Concord Project. Ken Warren, a Conservative MP, reinforced Mr. Kaufman's case for approval. Another speaker, Dr. Richard Garwin, said the argument that it would be unfair to require the Concord to meet the FAR 36 requirement as if it were a subsonic aircraft ignored the fact that it was the FAA themselves who had failed to produce an SST noise rule. This reminded him, he said, of the story of the young man who murdered his parents in cold blood and then threw himself on the mercy of the court because he was an orphan. <laughs> Secretary Coleman reviewed the arguments made at the hearing, considered further written submissions, and only one month later announced his decision. In essence, it was to approve the proposed flights for a trial period of up to 16 months, subject to certain restrictions. The published decision was a long document explaining in detail the various considerations legal, policy, environmental, technology, international relations that had led to the decision to approve. The decision and the exhaustive investigation leading up to it was an example of American federal action at its best an open process leading to a prompt and fair decision. Following the Coleman decision, Concord services to the United States began on the 24th of May 1976 with flights by both airlines into Dulles Airport, Washington. But the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, operators of Kennedy Airport, had other ideas. This ban triggered the long and costly battle to gain access for the Concorde to New York. The airlines claimed that the Concorde could meet the Kennedy noise limit of 112 perceived noise decibels. The Port Authority knew this, 
but was concerned at the low frequency noise and the expected aggravated community response to it. Hence the ban. The airline's response was to challenge the ban in the courts, but not immediately. And this is a good point at which to bring in the lobbyists and the differences of opinion between the British and the French. These differences were clear from the start of the approval battle. The British aimed to deal straightforwardly and at the technical level with the FAA. The French government and Aerospatial chose to employ a group of high-powered public relations consultants who recommended, surprise, surprise, a high-powered public relations campaign. In the words of Lou Sheffer of BAC's American subsidiary, they said, this is Washington and we'll go by Congress. And they rolled around in limousines and we rolled around in compact cars. In particular, the French relied heavily on DGA International of Washington, backed up by two other public relations firms. They relied rather too heavily on DGA at the beginning. Under the Foreign Agents Registration Act of 1938, those who represent overseas interests and who disseminate what is called political propaganda have to register as foreign agents, and they have to file regular reports with the Justice Department. So, in October 75, DGA filed a copy of its agreement with Aerospatiale. The document stated that DGA would be paid $70 per professional man-hour, plus expenses, to represent Aerospatiale in the USA, and added these two clauses. This was a bad idea. Capital B, capital I, exclamation mark. Such fees contingent on US government action are illegal. The Attorney General of the United States didn't like it and filed a civil action against DGA which pointed out that the defendant had done all these things. Despite the gobbledygook, you get the message. Naughty DGA. DGA said they were sorry if they had done anything wrong, which they hadn't, and they promised not to do it again. In the revised agreement, the bonus clauses were deleted, but DGA's fee rate went up to $100 per man hour, and an extra $200,000 was included to ensure that top professional talent of DGA shall be available. DGA's top talent included former Senator Charles Goodell of the law firm of Heidman, Mason and Goodell. Not only was Senator Goodell chairman of DGA, representing Aerospatiale, his law firm, separately, was representing the French government. DGA did pretty well out of the deal, averaging over a million dollars a year in 76 and 77. The Justice Department was not concerned at all with the amount spent. Uh, this was not an issue, so long as it was all accounted for.
down to 15 cents for a copy of the Washington Star in June 76, and a 97 cent meal, it says here, in April 77. That same month, over $30,000 was passed on to Heidman, Mason, and Goodell. A lot of people were involved in the pro-Concord campaign. For a start, the eight main interested parties, two governments, two aircraft firms, two engine firms, two airlines, together with their respective law firms, plus the various consultants. For the law firms, as indeed Harold Kaplan had told the American Bar Association some years earlier, supersonic flight promised boom time for lawyers in more ways than one. For the British government, several parts of government were involved. The Foreign Office, the Department of Industry, the Embassy in Washington, and the Consulate in New York. How were the efforts of this motley crew of officials, diplomats, technicians, managers, publicists, and lawyers coordinated? With great difficulty. Top coordinator was Ken Binning, ably supported by the aviation councillors at the British and French embassies, Sandy Gordon Cumming, and Léonce Lancelot-Bassou. I understand that Sandy and Léonce formed a most effective and formidable team. Throughout the approval process, the anti-Concord lobby was extremely active. The long-suffering residents living near Kennedy, already bombarded by noise, regarded any further increase as intolerable. The organized groups of environmentalists who had claimed credit five years before for killing the American SST, now relished the opportunity to slay another dragon and a foreign one to boot. Or, if not to boot, then to protest against in every possible way. Every possible way included all the conventional techniques, such as massed car protests, designed to bring traffic to a halt at Kennedy. A more innovative process, protest, was recorded thus in this caption from the New York Times. So it was an exciting time in New York. Among the established organizations was the Citizens League Against the Sonic Boom, which had turned its attention to the Concord following the demise of the American SST. Its founder, William Shercliffe of Harvard, developed a close working relationship with Richard Wiggs, founder of the Anti-Concord Project in Britain. And from time to time, the League passed on donations to the British group. Governor Hugh Carey of New York State fiercely opposed the Concord, so much so that he had signed proposed state legislation to direct the Port Authority to impose a ban. For this to take effect, New Jersey also would have to do the same. But Governor Brendan Byrne and his legislature in Trenton declined. 
at the national level, similarly, it would have been quite possible, quite easy, for Congress to have passed a law to deny the Concord access to the United States. This did not happen, but several attempts were made, one of which very nearly succeeded. In one committee exchange, Representative Lester Wolf of New York alleged, if not dirty tricks, then certainly a form of insider dealing by the British and French in exerting pressure on the White House. He was speaking in 1976, the bicentenary of the American Declaration of Independence. He said he agreed that the U.S. should recognize its debt to the French in that particular year, but to allow the Concord in really was going too far. I mentioned that the reaction of the Concord team to the Port Authority ban was to start to challenge the ban in the courts. This provoked a major disagreement between the French and British sides. The British argued for immediate action through the courts. The French, fearing a possible negative legal decision, put their money where their publicist mouthpieces were, continuing their high-level lobbying of Congress and the state authorities. Because of this, the initial legal step taken by the airlines was less than wholehearted. At French insistence, instead of taking action which would have produced a prompt decision, they filed only a bare complaint. This really was only a warning shot across the Port Authority's bows, and it was taken in March 76. Not until a year later did the case come to court. The event that appeared to trigger the court case arose from the Port Authority's stated intention to take a final Concord decision in March 77. Former Senator Goodell, acting for the French government, sent a telegram to the authority a few days before the decision date in which he reaffirmed that the Concorde could meet the Kennedy noise limit and, indeed, declared that the airlines could reduce the noise further by new procedures. The authorities' response was to announce the indefinite postponement of its Concorde decision. Goodell's response was to send another telegram saying, in effect, enough is enough. We shall pursue the matter in the U.S. District Court. Our patience has run out. Behind this public exchange lay another private exchange. Not only had Senator Goodell's patience with the Port Authority run out, also expired was British Airways' patience with Senator Goodell. He had suggested the new procedures without bothering to consult the British Airlines. After some full and frank discussions, BA agreed to go along with the Goodell initiative on condition that the French agreed to come to court without delay. The legal fight was a four-round affair. 
two main cases were known colloquially as Concord I and Concord II, and each was followed by an appeal. The legal arguments were complex, but I'll try to summarize the key decisions. In Concord I, the two airlines claimed first, that the Port Authority's ban conflicted with international treaties, and second, that U.S. federal action, the Coleman decision, preempted or overruled any local decision. Judge Milton Pollack concentrated on the preemption issue and ruled that the New York ban must indeed give way to the Coleman decision under the supremacy cause of the American Constitution. In the Concord One appeal, Chief Judge Irving Kaufman overruled this ruling on preemption, overturned it. The Coleman decision, he declared, did not preempt the Port Authority's right to refuse lending rights on the basis of a reasonable, non-discriminatory noise regulation. But a new issue had been raised in an advisory brief which the judge had requested from the Attorney General's office. This new issue was whether or not the Port Authority's delay in reaching a final decision on the Concord was reasonable. Judge Kaufman could not rule on this because the issue had not been considered by the District Court, so he passed it back to Judge Pollock. In Concord II, Judge Pollock reviewed in detail the actions and inactions of the Port Authority, whose Concord ban was supposedly intended to enable it to evaluate Concord operations and set noise standards for super supersonic transports in general. The story was one of time-wasting and inconsistency, the failure and excessive delay by the Port Authority in setting an appropriate noise standard, Judge Pollock ruled, were unreasonable, discriminatory and unfair, and an impingement on commerce and on the national and international interests of the United States. In the Concord II appeal, to cut a long story short, Judge Kaufman and his two colleagues agreed with the decision of the District Court. Judge Kaufman made this comment, which sums it all up very well. Finally, the Port Authority appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court to allow the ban to remain. The Supreme Court refused. Here endeth the litigation. Concord services to New York began on the 22nd of November, 1977. They continue today, and they could continue for another 20 years. The Washington services were dropped in November 94. In parallel with the British and French airlines' struggle to obtain approval for their Concorde flights to the United States, another quite separate process, rather more orderly but even more protracted, had been underway to obtain an FAA type certificate for the Concorde. This was required before any American airline could operate the machine. This process went through three stages. 
Anglo-American talks on safety aspects of supersonic transports had begun in 1961, when Air Registration Board and FAA officials met in Washington to discuss potential problem areas. After the signing of the Anglo-French Agreement in November 62, BAC and Sud lost no time in discussing first how to coordinate the French and British requirements, and second, how best to tackle American certification. In April 63, following further Anglo-American talks, the first conference was held at which international certification standards for SSTs were discussed jointly by all three countries. A further tripartite meeting in Paris in June 64 marked the start of a formal program intended to unify requirements. This was known as FAUST, F-A-U-S-S-T, standing for Franco-Anglo-U-S-S-S-T. The FAUST meetings continued over the next few years. In July 65, Sir George Edwards and General André Puget, on behalf of their companies, signed a formal application for a U.S. type certificate for the Concorde. Though the procedure was technical, the implications were political, as the State Department warned the FAA. If certification were to be refused, the Department pointed out, the political repercussions would be enormous, no matter how strong the technical justification. American certification of the Concorde proved a long drawn out affair. The Concorde team complained that American uncertainties were delaying Concorde development. The FAA complained in turn of the slow progress in issuing the Anglo-French standards which were needed for comparison. Along the way, the American SST was dropped in March 71, and Pan American and TWA cancelled their Concorde options in January 73. In the latter half of the 70s, Concorde type certification became entwined with a different issue, an associated wider issue. U.S. noise regulations for supersonic transports in general. So, to airworthiness was added what we might call earworthiness. I won't bore you with the process in detail, but it followed this sequence, involving yet another environmental impact statement, hearings, and so on. In January 77, President Ford was succeeded by President Carter, and William Coleman was followed as Secretary of Transportation by Brock Adams. The final decision emerged in June 78. The decision was that all SSTs, except Concords flying before 1980, must meet FAR 36 Stage 2 limits. For the 16 Concords expected to be flying by 1980, the noise limit would be their de facto noise levels. There was a precedent for this special treatment, the first generation of subsonic jet transports, 
had benefited in a similar manner. By the end of 1978, all the technical problems raised by the FAA were finally resolved. This was 17 years after the first informal talks, 13 years after the application for a type certificate, and 10 years after the start of the formal legal process. In January 79, copies of the US type certificate were handed over to Aerospatial and British Aerospace, and Braniff began its subsonic Concorde service between Washington and Dallas-Fort Worth. This service was abandoned as uneconomic on the 1st of June 1980. 17 years hard slog, resulting in 17 months Concorde operation by an American carrier. So, that's basically the story, much condensed. Let me start to conclude by offering a few thoughts with hindsight. First, on Coleman and preemption. There is no doubt that Secretary Coleman had the power to preempt. But if the federal government did act to preempt the New York local action, it would have been responsible for the consequences that is, for noise damage claims. Coleman's decision was equivocal. He authorized the trial services, but deliberately left open the question of preemption. He did not rule out opposing action by the Port Authority. In legal circles, I was told, this is sometimes known as tap dancing because your feet never quite stay on the ground. In his Concord decision, William Coleman proved a veritable Fred Astaire. Second, the many tensions and stresses between the Concord partners in the approval process. This was at least consistent. It followed the many tensions and stresses between the Concord partners in developing the machine in the first place. But that's another and a longer story. It's hard to say who was right. Before, during, and after the Coleman process, the French government and Aerospatial put their faith and a lot of money in the hands of their public relations mercenaries. The French president challenged President Carter on Concord at every opportunity while James Callaghan's public protestations were much more muted. On the other hand, it was the British who pressed for immediate legal action over the New York ban. And when the case did come to court, it was soon re resolved in the airline's favor. Third, the decision-making process. In the event, Concord approval was decided in three stages. First, by William Coleman, whose decision enabled services to begin to Washington, D.C. Next, by Chief Judge Irving Kaufman in the District Court of Appeals in Manhattan, which overturned the New York ban. And finally, by the Brock Adams ruling, which approved a continuation of services. Arguably, we have the Port Authority to thank for its interminable, unfair, discriminatory delay in reaching its own Concord decision. 
even if it was prompted by the wish to avoid legal actions from the long-suffering New Yorkers. It was this delay that led to the positive result in the Manhattan courts. But what contributed to the Port Authority's interminable delay? The interminable delay by the French side in coming to court in the first place. One final question, what if approval for transatlantic Concord services had not been obtained? In all probability, that quite simply would have been the end of the Concord story. U.S. approval for the Concord was crucial to its survival. In the climate of the time, cancellation of the American supersonic transport was inevitable. Survival of the Concorde was not inevitable, but was secured by a combination of French determination and American justice. The U.S. approval process was a complex and wholly exceptional experience, a remarkable piece of aviation history. I'd like to end with a short commercial, if I may, and to recap on two points. First, the commercial. As they say at the end of almost every television program these days, the book to accompany this lecture will be available shortly from all good bookshops, or in this case, from Airlife. And finally, to recap on two points, courtesy a recently discovered archive, it was here that I came across, first, the secret of the combined Concord team strategy. You may remember there were eight main players. This is how they coordinated their efforts. And this, the next slide, is the secret of the Secretary of Transportation's success. Just one of those things, I guess. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for the most uh, stimulating lecture. Um, it left a number of uh, points, uh, handles as we might say, for people to get hold of and, um, and grasp and uh, shake around a little. And uh, now is the time for that to be done. So uh, uh, may I invite from the floor anybody who would like to speak. Mr. McHenry. Yes. My name is John McHenry, and I was in the Department of Industry and was concerned in this battle along with quite a lot of other coups. Uh, I think one point worth making is that the Port Authority of New York desired, positively desired, to be forced legally to let Concord in. Then the onus would not be on them. I think commercially, if the truth were known, they were quite keen to have Concord in, because obviously it's good for their airport. But they had this awful legal problem, that if they let it in voluntarily, 
they could lay themselves open to very big financial claims. So I think really they asked for it. They wanted to be forced to law. And that's why, in the end, the British stress just succeeded, I think. Thank you. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. There were suggestions at the time that the port authorities' behaviour was so inept as to constitute taking a fall, if you like. I think you're absolutely right. It confirms what I'd done. Question at the back. Uh, Sandy Gordon Cumming, I was in the British Embassy at the time. Uh, one thing I think I'd like to knock on the head is the general perception in this country that the reason for the prolonged opposition to Concord in the United States is simple jealousy on the part of the United States aviation industry. That, for my money, is absolutely untrue. As I recall it, and Ken Binning on my side will correct me if I'm wrong, I think at the original Coleman hearing, I think two of the American uh, major airframe manufacturers testified on our behalf. The opposition was virtually entirely um, a congressional political reaction to protests by uh, their constituents, or what they saw as their constituents, and on environmental grounds. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. I think that's absolutely right. I was looking for a conspiracy, but I didn't find one. British Aerospace and BAC, as we were then. Hey, perhaps it's worth mentioning, perhaps along those lines, an earlier period to let one know, it didn't get quite the advertisement, perhaps, that was given to the later discussions of New York Port Authority, etc., but the early days of two agencies which gave us a great deal of assistance in the, in the United States. It is perhaps not well known that a KC-135 came to this country to assist us in anti-icing trials in the early days to folks like Concord. Uh, it was kept fairly secret, I think, even from some people in America at the time, lest it might do something. But they did, and were here for a considerable period, which was quite assistance. But a second and much more important thing was done, in conjunction with the FAA, was the use of the NASA, what was then called their Advanced Flight Simulator, in which was established those performance tests that would be done on Concorde with its particular and peculiar very low aspect ratio wing, which required the setting up of a completely new set of requirements for takeoff and field performance. This was done in conjunction with NASA, ourselves, the French, of course, in which all the information, the performance information of the airplane was given to NASA, and in return for that were established the performance requirements, which was done in the very early days. That was done in about 1971, 72. So we had a lot of cooperation. And perhaps on the side, the more amusing side, I would have a chance to talk to our noise men who actually measured the noise in New York, and uh, they were buried amongst the local New Yorkies, of course, who were suffering from the noise of Concorde and other airplanes, only to record that they received a very welcome reception from all the locals who were totally intrigued, and they never had anybody throw any brickbats at them, and they had a very enjoyable time. This aside, America wasn't all against us. There were many more in this country who were far fiercer antagonists. Yes, uh, the AIM simulator certainly was most important in the development of Concord. Uh, if I may say so, I mentioned this in my earlier Concord book. Gordon Core, the ARB test pilot, the late Gordon Core, was very fulsome in his praise of that facility. Uh, 
that, that, that's all I can say. Uh, I, I agree absolutely. Perhaps I could just come in at, at that point myself and ask whether these um, these contributions, these uh, uh, pieces of assistance that came from America, did they come when the Americans were still hoping to build their own? Um, and if so, uh, could they be construed, at least to some extent, as... Um, uh, being ways of uh, obtaining some useful information for the American manufacturers, or not? Yes. I think the answer to that is, is really no. There might have been a little. The whole team, I, I was very surprised. Well, I suppose I shouldn't have been surprised, but they were very cooperative, as I recall. There were a number of points. Bob McKinley, if he was here, could tell you better than I, because he was close to it. But uh, They didn't present any unusual difficulties. It was done very professionally and very reasonably. So, at least that agency was not out. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Wing Commander Barry Dove from the Ministry of Defence. You said you didn't come across any conspiracy theory involving the Americans, but you recall, I forget, uh, not all that long ago, there was a very interesting television programme on Concord, which revealed that the Russians had stolen the plans and therefore built Concordsky. I wondered if you found any signs of a conspiracy theory involving the Russians? Well, uh, I wasn't looking for that, but uh, the um, industrial espionage uh, on behalf of the TU-144, if you like, uh, took place in, in France, has been, I think, well documented. That certainly happened. Uh, I, I think it's an oversimplification if anybody believes they simply copied Concorde. Although at the time they were uh, producing airplanes that looked very much like Western types. I remember seeing a VC-10 over Heathrow and then realizing it was an optical illusion. <laughs> Sorry about that. But, uh, no, I... I uh, also saw was the television program you mentioned, in fact, on Konkordsky. Yes, that was a little misleading in its message, but a lot of the film was very interesting that it showed, yes. Another myth about the TU-144, as reported in the press more recently, uh, is the suggestion that there is an American-Russian SST, advanced SST, under development. This is not the case. NASA is using the ATU-144 as a testbed in its high-speed research program. It's interesting that, uh, what was the date, in about 1980, I think, Yes, Alan Greenwood proposed the use of Concorde for a similar purpose in NASA's then uh, SST research program, the uh, Supersonic Cruise Research Program. Uh, the proposal was accepted, experiments were agreed, and then the new Reagan administration cancelled the Supersonic Cruise Research Program. So it didn't happen, but it was all, all set to happen. I'm Ken Binning, um, and I would like 
to, to make some random, rather random comments. It's understandable that in the a resume of several years' research, uh, some of the arguments are rather more black and white than I suspect they were at the time, or certainly in my recollection. The first is that the French were anxious for uh, an, an, in, an informal attack, if you like, on the problem, uh, via the Congress, whereas the Brits, as usual, played it straight. Uh, now, it is quite true that presentationally uh, that was the case. It was simply not conceivable politically that funds could be made available in the UK at that time for interventions in the American political process. But I think it's fair to say that we were absolutely delighted that Aerospatial met the bills. The second point to remember is that one of the important lobbyist players, although he was a legal advisor, was the legal advisor to the UK government, and that was Bill Rucklehouse. Bill Rucklehouse, uh, for those of you who aren't old enough to remember, was whiter than white, because as the Assistant Attorney General under the Nixon administration, he had resigned before the Watergate action, uh, and subsequent, in fact, to his, his advising the UK government of Concord, he became the, uh, the director of the Environmental Protection Agency. So he, he had all the right uh, ambience uh, for the purpose of advising HMG. But nevertheless, his real purpose was to carry out in a discreet and proper fashion, I use those words, of course, in inverted commas, uh, the sort of activity which HGA and others were also carrying out. The second comment I would make is that nobody, I think, should underestimate the difficulty of negotiating in the United States or indeed anywhere else on the, the part of any of the players on the Concord side. When in March 1974 there had been a public and indeed agreed Anglo-French Anglo decision that the program should be stopped. And only after further discussion between uh, the UK Prime Minister, Hal Wilson, and the French President, was it agreed in July that the program should, be, should proceed, but only 16 aircraft should be made. Conducting any discussions with uh, third parties, it was extremely difficult to make the point that this was a highly desirable commercial uh, object uh, with a wide and expanding market when you had consciously decided to have so few of them. The, the third comment I would make, and I need to make this fairly carefully, I think, is that um, 
I do not believe that there would have been a Coleman hearing at all if it had not been for the fact that the question of the acceptability of Concord to the Port Authority had not been aired in advance. Uh, and it was one of the triggers which um, alerted Coma to the extremely difficult problems of actions and compensation, which made him anxious himself to take the lead in this matter. Of course, he didn't dispose of it because he came back again. But uh, I can assure you that it did happen. Um, the last point is that Concord and the negotiations in the United States are, I think, still unique in one odd respect. Uh, and that is that for the first time ever, British civil servants were authorized to not only to give evidence before, but actually to present and take initiatives in public hearings in the United States. And that certainly it was not the practice before, a matter of principle. One did not involve oneself uh, in the domestic activities of another country. And a fortiori, uh, the notion that a case on behalf of the government, jointly with the French, should be presented by not a civil servant, but a minister that was Gerald Kaufman, was also unique, and I think that record still stands. Um, that it was effective or not effective, I think not. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to argue, but it, it had those sorts of peculiarities. Uh, thank you, Ken. That's, that's most illuminating. Excellent background. Thank you, Michael Watkins, Guild of Air Pilots and Air Navigators. Your final point, uh, Speaker, was what if the applications in the United States had failed? Can I pose another what if? And perhaps taking up the second point made by the last speaker. What if the process had achieved its objectives instantly and there had been no delay at all in the introduction of Concord services into the United States? What effect would that have had commercially? on the future of the aircraft? I think I can answer that one, actually, and, and uh, it wouldn't have made any difference. And the reason is that the British Airways didn't have any pilots trained. And the reason they didn't have any pilots trained was there was a strike of pilots for about six months. And uh, it would have been very embarrassing, I think, for British Airways if we got into New York about six months earlier. <laughs> do, you, do you want to come back on that point? Yeah, thank you. That yes, I, I was thinking rather more widely about this yeah. sort of future, the export yeah. potential yeah. of the aircraft, yes. Yes. of course, I, and, and, I, and I, purchased I by the you customers. Were going to say yeah. that actually, I was going to say that myself. Um, comment on that, Brian, as well. Uh, David Rowland from British Airways and, and from the Concorde fleet. Um, back in those days, in the seventies, I was just a lowly co-pilot on, on the Concorde fleet. And it's very interesting to hear what was going on while I was learning my trade on it with people like Brian Calvert teaching me how to do the job. 
thank you to all of you who worked to get the aircraft into New York, because I'm still actually flying the aircraft 20-odd years later, so it's given me a career. Um, later on in my, in, my, in my career with the aeroplane, in the recent years, I've been flight manager of the fleet and also commercial manager. It's just worth perhaps commenting on the fact that the decision to pull out of Washington, you, you touched on it, was not operational, it was purely commercial. And that was the business had gone away and there was no more money to be made. Also, I think it's worth commenting that we, we actually weren't on strike in the in '76. Um, that the service could have been launched. It had been not as not as uh, as broad as it is now, uh, or, or probably quite as successful. But certainly, I don't recall Brian there ever being a strike at that time. We were certainly training people as quick as we could on the airplane and getting them on. And uh, it might have been a bit embarrassing if it had had um, slightly too many people, uh, too many services to operate. But we could have operated operated that service. I, I got it also to say is that you. you your talk has been Concord and the Americans, you, you ought to perhaps be aware that it's still going on um, in, in, in small ways. And it bears out your, your theory that you couldn't find a conspiracy, but what you found was, was, was a political uh, a motivation to it. About two and a half years ago, we started seeing articles in the local papers around New York in, in northern Queens and Brooklyn. Um, suddenly, articles started appearing about this horrendous noise from Concord, and wasn't it about time it was retired? And now that they've gone the other end of the scale, now it's an old aeroplane and therefore shouldn't he be retired. It's now old and noisy rather than new and noisy. And they were trying various different things. And, and this, this appeared um, from time to time. And we even saw on the front of one of the papers a, a published um, copy of our agreement for, for, uh, of how we operate the aircraft through the New York airport. Um, we, we, as you're probably aware, um, as part of our original proposals, uh, said that we would operate it in a certain way to meet certain regulations. When the ban was, was overturned, we no longer had to apply those rules, but out of, if you like, as a gesture of courtesy to the Port Authority, we, we did and still do apply those rules. And somebody got a copy of them, which was quite hard, because I, as the manager, hadn't got a copy either. I couldn't find one anywhere. Um, so I was grateful for appearing in the paper. And I sent the lawyers... <laughs> I sent the lawyers scurrying around to find and see if we could actually dig one out of the archive, and we could. And fortunately, we do still uh, abide by those rules. What was interesting is this, 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 current, this, this undercurrent started to happen and questions were asked. And when I started asking questions as to why, of course, it was congressional um, election year. And it, again, had been prompted by the local communities and the local district um, uh, councilmen and the local senators. And, and as soon as the election was over, uh, it completely disappeared off the agenda again. Um, and so it was interesting also that when it did appear... Ourselves and the French got together to talk, and there was a move, should we say, in a more, a slightly more Gallic approach to it, which was, let's put our heads down and charge at the problem, and our lawyers advised, let's just sit on our hands and do nothing, because it'll go away very shortly, and it did. So, and it'll no doubt arise again in four years' time, or whenever those elections appear again. So, I really just wanted to say, um, thank you for a very interesting talk, and just let you know it's still going on in a orbit a minor way. Thank you. That's fascinating. Um, the speaker very kindly commented that uh, Kim Warren gave evidence at the Concord hearings, and I think it's worth recalling the way those hearings were staged, literally. Uh, Secretary Coleman, who died recently, was sitting right in the middle of the stage, with television cameras on the right, broadcasting live. In front was his clerk with a bell, which he dinged when you'd had your time. I was allowed ten minutes, which was cut to five on landing, because people like Brian Calvert were uh, obviously going to take more time than anybody else. Um, but what I would say about those hearings were that you could make your statement, and the 70 people who made statements were all happy with the time they had and the way Coleman treated them. And I would thoroughly commend that kind of hearing to everybody else who's involved with any type of hearing anywhere in the world. 
uh, even the High Sierra, who would never hear a Concorde, had one minute. They had their chance. And uh, I thought that the man himself behaved impeccably. Uh, he had a, a, a pyramid-shaped a black Secret Service man sitting at the bottom of the steps, sweating profusely. And at sort of half-time, I asked him, what was it like? And he said, that guy sure worries me. He never moves. <laughs> but my own contribution, being a Machiavellian member of Parliament at the time, I was re representing both sides in Parliament, uh, whereas Gerald Kaufman was representing the government, a difference which you will all recognize on Thursday of this week. Um, the, 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 I decided that to exploit and to get some injury time, I would comment on the fact that uh, Mr. Coleman, uh, quite rightly, uh, as an ex-director of Pan American Airways, would obviously have a view about the cancellation by Pan American and uh, would therefore uh, not wish to be drawn into some personal acrimony about his own position. And the second point was that I was able to uh, think up the idea that the Americans had always stood in the way of progress with jet aeroplanes. The first comet had been diverted away from Kennedy and not allowed to land there. And this was therefore typical in the case of the Americans, the way they would be expected to treat Concord. However, that was naughty me. What I will say is I thought the hearings were handled immaculately. Everybody who gave evidence gave it, uh, apart from myself, extremely well, I thought. And may I make the point of, of Ken Binning has made um, a, a problem which arose under the what-if category. Uh, no member of parliament is allowed to talk to a civil servant other than across the floor of a select committee. Select committees didn't exist at that time. Therefore, we had no benefit of Ken Binning's uh, leadership. We could only talk to politicians. Therefore, uh, much of our knowledge was gained from the customer airlines, Air France and British Airways, who were extremely helpful. The second point I would make in the what-if category is what if the wonderful men of the Royal Aircraft Establishment had told us in the 1960s that overpressure was going to kill the project in the end. Now, that's the sad thing. Two billion pounds could have gone elsewhere and kept us in the leadership of world commercial aviation. Thank you. Yes, big what-if there. I'll just mention another good point in the Coleman process, and that was his decision came just one month after the hearing. Imagine that happening in this country. Yes. Can I make two light-hearted comments, please, Sandy Gordon, coming again? One <coughs> relating to the Coleman decision. Um, <coughs> he was kind enough to give me and my French colleague an hour's advance notice of <coughs> his decision. We were allowed to read it for an hour before it became public. But they were very concerned to make sure we didn't ring anybody up and tell anybody about it. And so we were each assigned personal uh, federal marshal. And I actually needed to spend a penny during the course of reading it. And it's the only time, and probably the last time in my life, I will ever have a pee accompanied by a federal marshal. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one, which is rather nice on the lobbying process, one of the guys that DGA hired in a fellow called Dick Aurelia, who had been deputy mayor of New York, deputy mayor of Lindsay. And he had a number of brilliant ideas. And one of the ideas that he hatched up together with DGA was to <coughs> make a little television film. And they were convinced that if they put the question in the right way and asked enough people, they would find some New Yorkers who were dead keen on the Concord. And so they went to all sorts of places, like supermarket car parks and things like that. They were wildly, desperately unsuccessful in this attempt. But they did actually play uh, some of the comments they got uh, back to us all 
And the one which I really enjoyed was a guy from the borough of Queens in the supermarket in Queens. And they bearded this guy as he went off the brown bag full of shopping and said, how would you like to have the Concord at Kennedy Airport? And he took a deep breath and he said, the Concord? Jesus, the Concord? I'd sooner have King Kong loose in the city. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brian Calvert, uh, lately of British Airways, had the pleasure of taking the first airplane uh, commercially into uh, Washington. Having been introduced by my friend, the Right Honourable Kenneth, here, uh, I, I feel I ought to reply at any rate. Uh, two things. I'd like to add finally to the, or perhaps finally, to the non-conspiracy theory argument. I found the same. Um, we were put on very heavy pressure trying to mount the first services into America because political pressure on the FA meant that they demanded of us, they had to demand of us, that essentially Concorde had to behave in the air like any other aircraft. Well, as it went a lot faster, and even at uh, holding speeds, for example, our holding speed was 250 knots. We would actually like to have done it faster than that. Um, but the usual one was between 160 and 190, and we were expected to fit within an area which was defined for the much slower aircraft. Uh, we were expected also to do what we eventually termed the fall-off-the-wall technique, which involved belting along towards the east coast of the United States and then pulling the power back and doing a sort of ballistic trajectory to arrive subsonically precisely 20 miles off the coast. This is because they wouldn't let us through a tiny corner of a reserved area for testing of military aircraft by McDonnell Douglas on Long Island. And there, were, uh, there were many things of this sort that we had to do. None of them, I got the impression, were in any way caused by the FAA trying to give us a hard time, but simply passing on the hard time they were getting from the politicians. Um, I have a fund of stories about Concord, and, and many of them are scatological. So, if anybody wants to hear them, can do outside. <laughs> uh, finally, I think a little personal one, that I'm not sure it's ever been told before. It, it fell to me in the months before going to the United States to go and have to answer the case for VA in the public relations sense at uh, things like phone-ins and so on. A new experience for me. Uh, but at one of them at Washington, in, in the middle of the night, out in the suburbs of Washington somewhere, a number of rather nutty people rang up, <coughs> and there was a dear old lady appeared about one o'clock in the morning and accused me personally of mounting a second wave of conquest of the United States. And I couldn't think what on earth she was talking about, nor could the interviewer for quite a long time until it dawned on us all that she was referring to my forebears, not actually forebears, but bearing the same name, Lord Calvert, who first founded Maryland. I thought that was pretty abstruse. <laughs> <laughs> this is an evening for reminiscence. Here's a true one. Uh, prompted by what Ken Warren was saying. Uh, my name's John Rogers, and I was business director at the time at BAC Weybridge. Uh, spending four miserable months in Manhattan trying to negotiate a purchase and sale agreement with Pan Am. Uh, Sir George came in from California. Geoffrey Knight was there, of course. John Prothero Thomas and myself. And we had to persuade uh, Sir George that there was no way Pan Am were going to buy the airplane. Uh, they had a $783 million senior debt. 
You couldn't afford a bicycle, let alone a fleet of, uh, of Concords. Of course, we just had Michael Heseltine in town, who was uh, coursing through the banks and the leasing companies. Perhaps this comes as a what-if to justify its presence in this evening's discussion. So the phone rang in Geoffrey Knight's suite in the pier. Just four of us there. Geoffrey picked up the phone. It's for you, Sir George. Michael. Heseltine was on the phone. It was 11 o'clock his evening, 8 o'clock hours. And says, George says, uh, well, you should be get used to the idea, Michael. He said, there's no way, no way the Pan Am's in the Bight of Concord. And explained in some detail why that was the case. And Heseltine replied to Sir George, all right, George, I should expect you to look after the press. <laughs> <laughs> and Sir George replied, all right, Michael, I should expect you to look after Parliament. Um, my name is Harold Kaplan. I'd just like to underline one of the points made about the Port of New York Authority. There had been about 20 previous years of litigation around New York, starting from the days when it was called Idlewild, uh, because of noise nuisance. There was absolutely no way the Port of New York Authority could have just said yes to Concord to reinforce the point that already has been made. Port of New York Authority needed a legal ruling before doing it. It was absolutely vital. Um, I have two questions for Ken, who I thought gave us a beautifully lucid survey of what I know is very hard work in years of research. One is, what was the date when the Americans finally abandoned their SST project. I asked because I noticed in this week's British Airways News, it was almost exactly 20 years ago, there was an attempt at a massive protest at uh, Kennedy Airport by road. It failed really for lack of support. Uh, so I, I'd be interested to know whether that was before or after the SST uh, project was abandoned. And my final question is, what was the influence, if any, on the American attitudes of the Swedish sage, Bo Lundberg, who was a devout opposer of the Concorde project? Yes, the uh, American SST ran out of funds uh, March 71. Uh, Lundberg and his papers were an important input to the organized environmental groups in the U.S. Shercliffe, again, as well as British groups such as the Anti-Concord Project, made the best use they could of Lundberg's papers. You may remember he was a... Uh, a pessimist, mind you, the, uh, the market forecasts at that time were envisaging that uh, supersonic transports would be booming many corridors over Europe. I think it was at that time. And uh, Lundberg uh, always had one or more maps of these corridors that would be devastated by uh, supersonic transports going uh, this way over Europe. That was the, uh, the French idea at the beginning, of 
course, and on Concord, two versions were proposed. Their version was a medium-range one mm. for European service, believe mm. it or not. Mm. Mm. But uh, Lundberg was uh, well received by the uh, activists over there. Would you say that uh, Lundberg really was uh, uh, crucial then in um, in ensuring that uh, uh, supersonic uh, flight over land was uh, prevented? Uh, he was probably in the vanguard in pointing that out, pointing in making a fuss about what <coughs> could happen. I think the actual decision made some years later was forced by a general environmental awareness mm. and political mm. awareness that this just wasn't on. Yes. But he helped it along, obviously, clarified yes. the consequences. Yes, he gave an academic uh, respectability to that case. My name is Aubrey Jones. I'd like to ask a question somewhat outside the habit of the lecture. I wonder whether Mr. Owen might tell us something about the Anglo-French organization for the construction of our Concord and its present state. We have uh, an eminent questioner here. For those who don't recognize me, Mr. Jones, in a way he was the father of Concord. Though whether he'd accept paternity or not, I don't know. But <laughs> yes, I thought so. <laughs> he, does, he, yeah. he was Minister of Supply in 1959 when the Supersonic Transport Aircraft Committee reported and he tried to persuade his colleagues in the cabinet that supersonics were desirable. And indeed, at that stage, at that very early stage, Mr. Jones was in favor of collaboration with the French, which the rest of the cabinet, I believe, were not. A very early proponent of an Anglo-French collaboration. You ask about the organization of the production of Concorde, I, I don't know where to start, really, but very generally, the organization was not a good organization. It, if you were doing it properly, you would not split it down the middle and uh, divide it in two. That was done for reasons of national prestige. You would not make decisions by committees. Again, split down the middle. The organization that was adopted with all its faults, and I must say they taught uh, organizations like Airbus later on how not to do it, if you like, so that Airbus did it better. And again, at the climate of the time, it was inevitable that it would be done that way. Mm -hmm. I remember other organizations like the European Launcher Development Organization and the European Space Research Organization, which again had firmly to divide the work along national lines, reflecting national contributions to the program. Concord, as you know, was supposed to be, I don't know if it ever was, uh, sorted out this way, it was supposed to be absolutely 50-50 by way of costs, and I think that occupied Ken Binning and other people for many years uh, 
to get the right split. I, I'm at a loss right now to go into any detail on your question. I'm sorry, but uh, with hindsight, as and this was was apparent 15 or 20 years ago, you would not do it that way. Again, of course, in any normal aircraft program, if you were only going to build 16, you wouldn't do it. <laughs> the centre section, which was built by the French, we built the nose and some of the rear. So you had a, a bit of fail-safe in the front, a bit of safe life in the middle, and a bit of fail-safe behind it. And uh, <laughs> this resulted in the airplane actually being limited to 5,000 hours by the FAA. I think we would ourselves, until a significant modification has been done to all airplanes, because it became impossible to inspect the safe life bit, which was taking stress during rotational takeoff. But that was some of the anomalies that did occur, which has always struck me as being a rod one. I can say that because it had nothing to do with construction of it. Is there anybody here who would like to say anything about the um, the impact of noise in New in the New York area? Um, we've heard that uh, the Port of New York Authority was very sensitive. Much involved in work on Concord noise in the early 70s at the National Gas Turbine Establishment. And of course, technically it was a, a very, very difficult problem indeed, and we didn't manage to make much progress with it. Uh, but I have sometimes wondered since whether uh, the aircraft is perceived as a really horrendous aircraft around the area of, uh, uh, of Kennedy now, or whether it uh, people just shrug their shoulders and, uh, and aren't too worried. Can anybody say anything? Oh, thank you. During the um, event I referred to earlier, when we were getting a lot of publicity, um, I was also getting quite a flood of letters from local residents, which is actually quite unusual, and I would say, therefore, that they have probably learned to accept the noise. I got one letter from a young man who'd gone back to live with his parents on, on the Rockaway Beaches, which is the, the narrow strip of coast we, we fly over um, after while well, we're in our left-hand turn off our northwesterly runway. And he said the noise was horrendous and he didn't think it was acceptable. And he was putting it in the hands of his lawyers. And I wrote back and said, how come your parents haven't complained? He said, oh, they're deaf. He said. Um, it, it's... Debate whether there actually were, but, but it's a matter of, I think the, the, the accepted is that people get used to the noise. And in actual fact, in terms of the noise readings, we demonstrated quite early that we could actually make less recorded noise than the regular subsonic air, aircraft of the time, that the 707s were still around, the VC-10s and the like. Um, obviously, the, the, the more modern ones make more noise than we do, and, and nobody can deny that. But at the time, um, the departures were flown by most people, most of us who'd flown the subsonic aircraft in there, I don't know whether Brian would agree, in a, in a, they were not a precise procedure, they were sort of turn left sometime after takeoff, and that's how the, the sort of procedures were defined. We came along and, and brought a whole new precision to that, and as a result we, we in fact got very, very few violations, or very few readings over 112 PNDB, um, and it was quite embarrassing for the, for the subsonic operators. And it's quite noticeable that within the year of us operating in there, they were operating to a different standard as well. 
And for the next, it's just recently stopped it two years ago, for the next 18 years or so, we got take-off-by-take-off readings sent to us. Um, and, and we were getting, on average, um, a, a far lower percentage of violations recorded than, than the subsonic aircraft. Now, it's one thing to, to actually have a recorded noise and for, for that to be, to be measured. The other thing, and we cannot deny, we make a horrendous amount of noise. And um, there are times on a warm day with a heavy aircraft and you uh, take off off 3-1 left, the northwesterly runway, and you turn left immediately after you get airborne. And out of my seat, looking out to the left-hand side, you can see people scattering almost down below us. Um, <laughs> I, I take, I'm, I'm relieved by the fact that they're below us. I mean, that's the, um, but it, they, they, we get very few complaints, and, and we've always, I've always been amazed, and we've discussed it um, within the company, within the fleet. And we can only put it down to the fact that people do get used to the exposure; they get used to the time. Uh, they think, well, it's it's sort of nine o'clock, but it'll be over in a minute, and it's gone. And the one good thing about us is that by by going over the same place every day, we expose the same people to the same noise footprint. And the good thing about it is that they've got used to it. And what is noticeable is if, if circumstances change or our route changes, then we get noise uh, complaints. And the same happens at London as well, from people who are not used to being exposed to our noise. So it 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 shows the worth. Of, of tried procedures that we do, we, that, that we stick to, and, and we keep to all the time. But nobody can deny that we're noisy. Um, and if you've ever stood there and stood under us when we go, uh, we, we can't deny that. But it just does appear that they, they have become, apart from the political seasons, have become um, accepting uh, of our presence. Thank you very much for that. I think it's important to recognize that it wasn't only. It, Concord noise is a problem at JFK because there are Concords at JFK. But any excuse uh, on which Americans could, or others could have to complain about aircraft and noise around airports was taken. There aren't many of those. There were very few public hearings in the United States associated, for example, with the expansion of, of, of airfields, of airports. But there were eight hearings uh, re related to either supersonic engine noise, and that can only mean Concorde noise, uh, for the purpose of, of um, preparing an appropriate FA standard. Or there were hearings specific Two proposals to land and take off aircraft, either in Cullis uh, or JFK, and the this was happening at a time when two other things were also unfortunately happening. The first was an increasing awareness uh, on the part of the American public of environmental impacts of all sorts but particularly those which were easily identifiable. An aircraft noise is one of those. And a lot of intellectual effort became available to prepare arguments against it. And the other, of course, was the arrival on the scene of subsonic aircraft, uh, which not only made less noise, 
but also were also much more easily distinguishable in terms of the noise they made from Concord. And it's, I think, part of the perennial Concord problem is that once you've heard it, you can distinguish it, irrespective of whether you find it irritating or not. In fact, I'm on the flight path uh, coming into land in, at Heathrow, quite a way out from South East London. But if I'm in my greenhouse, I can identify Concord. Now, being an ex-Concord chap, that doesn't worry me too much. I'm rather pleased to it's still flying. But it is readily identifiable, and this has always caused a problem, because it, it, I, I can recall it being argued at hearings in New York that it was much noisier because more people recognized it. And this is a problem you can't get round. The arguments, however, which were prepared on aircraft noise and supported by the, the international quote experts, unquote, which mention had been made, turned up not only in the United States, or not only in, on the eastern seaboard, but in Los Angeles, in um, uh, San Francisco, in Sydney, in Singapore, and in India. So that the, the consciousness of noise was not confined to those areas, but there was, in all these cases, a particular occasion uh, available to people who could not otherwise easily object. Mm, thank you. Any, any more? I think we're getting towards the stage where we ought to start drawing things to a close, so if I could accept two or three more points from the floor and then we'll perhaps wind up. Yes, on there. Reverting to Konkorsky for a moment, if I may, um, is it possible to, to say why it was so unsuccessful um, it, it had to use afterburn uh, to get uh, uh, supersonic and then of course it did break up in the most spectacular way at the Paris Air Show can anyone throw any significant light on this? I don't know if anybody else here wants to come in on this one but my understanding is that the Paris accident was uh, not caused by any structural defect in the machine now that the, we understand that the, the the pilots overstressed it, didn't they? That, that For was some the, reason. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, but Peter Baker. Yeah, uh, I disagree with the summation made by that program. Somebody mentioned the other day that it was because there was a French aircraft flying about it, taking photographs. Well, I'd add that on the ground it was available to anybody to take as many photographs as they wanted. I can't really see why the French would want to take photographs from it from a mirage. One of the theories was that it pitched over seeing this aircraft as the pilot. I, I don't believe that had any truth in it at all. I witnessed the accident, and it, there was some tough stories that the Russian crew had been castigated to some extent for not demonstrated it, demonstrating it as quite spectacularly, as Concord had been demonstrated. And it did look as if he was trying to do some steep pull-up, Shandell-type manoeuvre. I did witness it did have a puff, a black
black smoke out of the back of it before it did a nose down pitch which clearly could not have been achieved just by applying elevator and something happened to that stage I suspect there was something like engine flame out or that sort but no crewman or pilot could have pitched it over at that rate by the use of flying controls in my judgment and there was only one route out I recall saying to somebody at that time that airplane is going to crash it was 3,000 feet at the time he said how do you know that and I said well he's either going to go straight to the ground or it's going to break up when he pulls out and the recorded pictures you saw of it on television never showed you that top hit where he pitched down so rapidly it was only caught later when people got their cameras on it when it flipped on its back but that was when he was pulling out of the dive and that's what broke the airplane but I think something happened not structurally perhaps but within systems at the top of that chandelier type of movement there wasn't a fully um, explanatory accident report, I take it. The understanding was that the, the pilot and the French, that the flight recorder had to be diagnosed and looked at in Moscow or in Russia. When they got there, they found there was nothing on it. Uh, thank you for patience, just listening to it one more time. But just it did occur to me that you were saying you were bringing things to a conclusion. And, and the title is Concord and the Americans. And I just. I think I'd just like to flag up and make the point that uh, relating ourselves with the Americans at the moment, the Americans love the aeroplane now. Uh, we've taken it to over 50 cities in the United States. It gets live local television, live press and media. They swarm all over it. They write about it. They send me poetry about it. They, they, they make films about it. They love it. And I, I love the American nation. I think it's a wonderful nation to, to operate to and, and, and to have friends there and, and, and to work with because they're so easy with their admiration for things. And I think it needs recording the fact that they, they do love the aeroplane. Um, the one or two cities still refuse to have us because we're noisy and polluting in their words. Um, Denver came to mind when we wanted to go there, so Colorado Springs just down the road said, no, come here instead. So we said, okay. So Denver said, oh, well, perhaps you can come here after all. So we said, yeah. <laughs> We've decided to go to Colorado Springs. They love it, and there's also, from a commercial point of view, the aeroplane has made money for British Airways for many, many years. Um, forgetting the argument about the taxpayers and the, buying and, and, and building the aircraft, we, we operate and make money with the aircraft, and nearly half of that money comes from Americans. It's dollar earner. It's, it's a huge dollar earner. So, so it's not us invading them with 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 Europeans and the Brits who, who, who are using the aircraft to get over there. They are paying a lot of money year in and year out, day in and day out to fly on our aeroplane. And when we, when we take it to their cities around the States, they, they love it. So Concord and the Americans has turned out to be, I think, so not really what if, but it's and, and so, has turned out to be a huge success. Those many ports of call were on charter flights. Well, thank you. That's perhaps a, a, nice, a nice note to, to end on. Um, before I thank uh, uh, Ken on... on your behalf, perhaps though I'll uh, uh, take the unusual step of, in view of the uh, extensive and varied discussion of asking him whether he feels he'd like to add any final words to uh, the <laughs> evening himself from, from his point of view. Would you like to come in on a last few comments or not, Ken? Well, uh, I'm a little surprised nobody has inquired whether there'll be a son of Concord, not uh, the subject of my talk, but uh, 
a lot of people are interested in that, and if I had been asked, I think I'd have replied that I'm really rather agnostic on this, in that I don't believe it's possible right now to come down either strongly for or strongly against a next-generation machine. Uh, sometimes the NASA high-speed research program gets mixed up with the development program. There's no such development program, so that's a little premature. And equally, uh, the opponents again have... Uh, got out their pens or knives or whatever and are protesting, in my view, a little too much because uh, that's premature as well. I guess my feeling is that there are two extremes. I don't think you get many people in the middle. Uh, a lot of people in this audience, I imagine, would very much like to see a second generation SST. The dyed-in-the-wall anti-Concord people will protest at any such enterprise. I think it will only be decided, uh, not before the year 2000, but when the NASA research program is complete, and when the industry, and this inevitably, I think, means international industry, decides it will do it, which in turn ought to depend on whether the airlines want it. I don't think the airlines will want it, not until they've handled the very large machine that uh, is coming along. They couldn't do both at the same time. They won't do the supersonic first. So, the time scale will be pushed back. The study groups are in existence already, and international collaboration is being talked about. But uh, people say uh, there are no showstoppers, in the sense that uh, they haven't hit any, any uh, technical barrier to continuing development. So there are no showstoppers. I'd, I'd only add, neither are there any show starters. So I'm, I'm rather skeptical. Uh, that would be my feeling on this. Well, thank you very much, uh, Ken. Um, uh, I, I would compliment you very strongly on uh, the way you put that. Um, uh, perhaps I'm doing that because it, it happens to... Uh, be just about exactly in line with my own feelings on the subject. Uh, I think it is a, a very big issue, the, the possibility of uh, a future SST, and I guess that uh, one of the reasons why it hasn't been raised from the floor today has been that uh, a lot of people here recognise it as, as a huge issue and uh, one on which obviously we could have a uh, a separate, uh, separate evening, or a, a separate, separate week. In fact, a tremendous uh, subject. Um, so I, we will wind up uh, now. Um, 
Uh, I'd like to uh, begin by thanking all those uh, who've contributed from the floor in making this a very interesting evening. Um, I think uh, collectively, I hope we've, uh, we've gained uh, quite a bit from hearing all this. Um, uh, it will be um, put together on paper in due course, I hope, so that uh, uh, people can read it. Um, in that way it will be of lasting value and uh, certainly in the short term it, is, it, it will be there on, on record if any serious student wishes to consult it. But of course, having thanked all of you who've uh, contributed in this way, uh, most of all, of course, we want to thank Ken Owen himself for the splendid lecture uh, I think somebody said, very lucid, beautifully balanced lecture which he gave us to kick off the whole subject this evening. I think we've had a, a very, very interesting evening indeed. And uh, we look forward, of course, in due course to the, uh, the more extensive words printed between hard covers which will be upon us any minute now. But uh, that's not really commercial. It's, uh, <laughs> um, it is, uh, I think it's a, a situation where somebody who's done a great deal of serious uh, research work um, uh, deserves to have his, uh, his written efforts uh, known about. And uh, I, I would ask everybody here to join me in... Uh, uh, thanking Ken and expressing our appreciation of his uh, lecture in the usual manner. <laughs>